If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to get to the end of uh, chapter 4 and move into chapter 5 a little bit today as we continue to preach through the book of 2 Corinthians. We went to the, um, well, let's see, Friday night we went to church went to uh, the Elf production there in Logan, and uh, we arrived in, in town, and as we were arriving in town, um, they were having a Christmas parade, they are about to have a Christmas parade, and we all, yeah, it was good timing, and uh, got to see it, they had a big parade, and it was a lot of fun, and um, we were standing outside the, uh, what's, what's that called, is it the Cofield Jamboree, is that what they call that, yeah. Uh, we were standing outside there, and you know the parade goes by, and uh, <laughs> and they'll stop from time to time, and and Santa Claus stopped right in front of me, his sled. He had his sled, and they were pulling him in a sled and everything, and he and he stops right in front of me, and you know I had the moment, I had the time to ask Santa Claus, you know, for what I wanted for Christmas. <laughs> I I go, I say, hey Santa, I want a new driver for Christmas. He said, uh, what? I said, I want a new driver for Christmas. He said, a golfing driver? I said, yes. And just as his sled's pulling away, he says, well, you can't hit it straight anyway. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> I said, man, Santa gave me down the road there. <laughs> but he's, he knows everything, apparently, because he knows I can't hit it straight. So... <laughs> All right, uh, let's, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to preach into chapter five, but I'm, I'm going to hold off uh, at the, we're going to read to the end of chapter four here from 16 to 18. I'll preach a little while and then we'll read the final verses. And uh, aren't you proud of me this week? I'm going to get through verse five. <laughs> we're not changing, we're not changing the, eh, we'll get through three and that's it. No, we're going to do all the verses I have in the bulletin. So this is what the Bible says. Here's, hear the word of the Lord. So we do not lose heart, uh, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been studying um, Paul's defense of his ministry, considering the charge from his opponents that he's weak. You know, that's the, the, the charge that they, that they give as they try to, as they attempt to woo the Corinthian Christians away from the ministry of Paul uh, to their ministry, which is a ministry of Judaism and a ministry of serving the law and uh, a ministry of moralism. And as we've seen, the charge of weakness is not something that Paul denies. In fact, he embraces it, and he, this is what he admits. He admits that he's simply an old clay pot that's cheap and breakable. <laughs> that's what he comes down. He's like, hey, I'm just a jar of clay. That's all that I am. Of course, his opponents were arguing that Paul's weakness and his constant afflictions and the rejection that he experiences and the fact that he was hated by the world were all proofs that God was not with him in his ministry. They said, this is proof that God rejects him. They believed in some kind of victorious Christian living idea of ministry. But that's not the way it is in real life. 
And Paul refutes that conclusion by agreeing that, yes, it's true that he's weak. Uh, that is true. Uh, but because of the enormous success of his opponents, his, of his ministry, his opponents were forced to answer the question as the reason for his success. They had unwittingly made Paul's point for him. It was true that he was weak. He's just a clay pot. He's always afflicted and persecuted and hated. And yet everywhere he goes, people are... are um, being converted to Christ. Churches are starting up and in no time they are being filled up and expanding and the whole city pretty soon is getting turned upside down. And so rather than undermining Paul with his charge of weakness, they make the point for God's blessing upon Paul, Paul's ministry and leadership. And given the fact that all we know about Paul's afflictions, it must be true that God was, is with him. Otherwise, why isn't he an invalid? Why isn't he in jail? Or why isn't he dead? And why are people being converted if he's such an offense to everyone that he comes in contact with? And the answer is, is that the reason why this is, is because God is with him. He's weak, but God is with him. So Paul embraces the charge of weakness and he uses it as an opportunity to showcase that God's with him in a mighty way. He's being used by God. But there's also the benefit that's there for believers. It's good for us I'll tell you this, it's good, you know, I want to talk here about the benefit that we get from, from all of this. And, and so often we reflect upon God and we reflect upon our purposes and, and, and I'm, I make sure we talk about we're to be used for the purposes of God. And so whatever he says uh, about us and whatever he ordains in our life is there for a reason and all that. And yet at the same time, at the same time, there is God, there is a benefit for us as believers. So it's good for us to first go and see how God uses people for his glory. It's good for us to see how we exist for the purpose of doing what he has said uh, we're going to do for his purposes. It's humbling for us to recognize that in the great scheme of things, we're the equivalent of old clay pots in the story that God is weaving through time. But the fact of the matter is also this, that we are benefiting from the process that is taking place in our lives. All that suffering that is done in Jesus, done, done, that, is, that is done for Jesus, is doing something wonderful in us. There's something special for us that God is doing in his people through the afflictions and the persecutions and the hardships of life. And Paul illustrates this um, in our passage today by contrasting that what we are in our present earthly existence versus what we will be when at the final day when the general res resurrection takes place and we are risen from death and given a brand new glorious body to dwell in a new heaven and earth. He makes that contrast here. And we see it there in verse 16. He says there in verse 16, on the, on the one hand, we're outwardly wasting away. That's what he says. We're outwardly wasting away. And Paul uses this in the context of the constant affliction that he endure, endured. We've talked about this, but every day that Paul lived, Paul, someone was either trying to, trying to kill him or plotting to kill him. This is the life in which he lived. Uh, the pressure of that, the pressure that was coming down on Paul for that and, and upon the churches and their turmoil, turmoil was pressing down on him so that he had lost what hair he had. You know, what he lost his hair and what hair he had was turning gray. His body was scarred from the, the stonings and the beatings that he received for Jesus Christ. He was, when he was beaten now, he didn't recover in the way that he did when he was younger. He had aches and he had pains that he 
didn't have just a few years earlier. It was evident to Paul that he was outwardly wasting away. And Paul's experience is the experience of every single human being on earth, isn't it? That lives long enough. We are all heading the way of death. No matter how young you are now, no matter how strong you are right now, one day you won't be. We are wasting away. But notice the contrast that Paul makes. Inwardly, he says, we're being renewed day by day. We are all being transformed by the Spirit. We will all be raised in the coming resurrection. It is an incessant renewal that takes place inwardly in the lives of Christians. As bad as it is for us in our outward wasting away, it doesn't compare to the renewal we experience inwardly because of what Jesus Christ has done within us. So here's what we have. We have the treasure of the gospel within us. We have the treasure of the spirit. We have the treasure of Jesus Christ dwelling within us. In fact, when we look at our outward wasting away and we contemplate what is being renewed in us day by day, in spite of all this, we have the hope of being raised from death that's inevitable and we will be presented to Jesus Christ. This is going to happen to us. In fact, Paul puts it to us in this breathtaking way in verse 17. I just love this. Look at verse 17 again. He says this light and momentary affliction It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, most of you have been here with me as we've preached through 2 Corinthians. Would anyone describe Paul's afflictions as light and momentary? We wouldn't, would we? We wouldn't. We wouldn't look at it that way. We all know what Paul suffered, don't we? But this is what he says. So you're thinking, what a verse, isn't it? What meaning there is in this. What glory there is that awaits us since whatever this world has for us in terms of hardship and affliction and trial and rejection and persecution and sickness and disappointment is considered to be light and momentary. And this is how Christianity just soars for the believer, isn't it? You, you, and you realize you and me can do anything, Right? Isn't this what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens, who strengthens me? That's what this means, isn't it? You know, this, that's what this means. I can endure any affliction, any hardship that God purposes for my life because I can do everything that he's purposed for me. That's what that means. By necessity, we've got to contemplate and meditate on our weakness and, and upon our dependence upon God. We must even consider how our wretchedness apart from Christ and then embrace that fact so that we understand that everything that God, that God gives us is a gift from his sovereign hand. But then we get to this and we're being told that however bad it is in this life, it's merely light and momentary when compared to eternity. And what's more is this, it's preparing us for something. And that means that our sufferings and our afflictions and our persecutions, these things aren't pointless. That's a feeling, isn't it? Sometimes that, you know, why do I have to go through this? Why do I struggle with this sickness or this chronic condition? These things, these things aren't pointless in our life. They are preparing us for something. As evil as persecution is, it wouldn't be a negative in our life. Paul had these opponents of his in Corinth just leading the people astray as they point to his suffering. And here's what they say. They say, well, look at him. He's suffering. How can God be with Paul? 
Paul reminds us that these things are preparing us for the age to come. There's nothing that can happen to you and me in this present evil age um, that, uh, uh, that will overturn the purposes of God for you in your life. Even evil things work together for the eternal good of those that love him. That's what the Bible says, right? That's what the Bible says. And Paul has often been talking in these scriptures about himself and about his ministry. We know that he's, when he says we, oftentimes he's being modest because it would be embarrassing for him to refer to himself so often. But there's no mistake in here. Paul's talking about you and me and all believers everywhere here. We all share with Paul in the pain of identifying with the crucified Jesus in his sufferings. That, that, that Jesus the world hates. They do. They like the welcoming and the affirming Jesus. But the crucified Savior for your sins and mine, they cannot stand. The world mocks Christ. They hate him. They hate his followers. And we share in those sufferings of Paul and all other Christians. And these sufferings are light and momentary when we compare them to the eternal weight of glory that will be ours in the age to come. And I understand you've got to have that, that mentality in your mind. Understand that. To know that these afflictions are light and momentary, you have to have your mind on the eternal weight of glory that, that will be upon you when you, you go to heaven. But put, fix your mind on that. That's the help for you in getting through a life that's, that can be difficult and, and chronically ill or, or, or persecuted or hated for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 18 again. Uh, let's look at it there. It says it again, <clears throat> as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but, these, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul here reminds Christians what, what we are looking for. We're, we are not looking to see, we're not looking to see how this life is going as a measuring stick for how well our relationship with God's going, you know. And that's what a lot of modern Christianity does. There's the legalist and the moralist out there telling you how, you know, how to, how, how you to, how to look at how good you're doing as a way of measuring whether or not God is with you. If you look the part, if you act the part, if you're a good person, well, then God must be pleased with you. It doesn't work that way, does it? It's not what the Bible teaches us. Uh, then there's the prosperity preachers telling you that the measuring stick is seen in so far in, in, in so far as uh, how how wealthy and how physically well you are. Are you getting your dream job? Are you getting your dream house and and the healing that you've been looking for? Now that this is in contrast to what Paul says. He tells you if you look to worldly things, you're in a mess. Because those are things that are temporary and they are passing away. He tells us instead to look for things that are unseen, things that are eternal. And that, my friends, is what it means to be walking by faith. That's what it means. It is the way to see the purpose, your purpose in life. These Corinthians had been raised in, in paganism. They had a gloomy view of the afterlife. They had no answer to death. And it drove them to despair. But Paul came shining the light of the gospel and bringing truth to them. We have a hope 
in things unseen and eternal. And it is the hope of resurrection and of life with Jesus Christ. And having this hope, we do not despair. Excuse me. As we move to chapter 5, in the first five verses, Paul speaks of the longing here on earth as a as a Christian, to have our salvation completed by God. And he uses striking striking imagery, as you'll see. So let's read verses 1 to 5. For we know that if this tent, that is, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In these verses, we are shown what this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for. We are seeing uh, some of what this eternal weight of glory is. It has to do with a heavenly existence And where Paul said that as currently we are simply old clay pots, he changes the imagery now to that of a dwelling in the first part of these verses and to that of a garment in the latter part of these verses. So what we are now is simply a tent while we're here on earth. Now this is, of course, referring to the body, isn't it? You know, you have this earthly tent. This is is the body that that, that Paul's talking about. And if Christ should return and bring us home with him, well, we'll have more than a tent. We will have an eternal house in heaven. Now, the opponents of Paul are so focused on the here and now and the existence of a life that's filled with comforts. And when that is your focus, it leads you to a life of compromise with people who hate the gospel and who want to change it to suit them. They want you to take this piece out and they want you to take that piece out. And when you compromise, oh yeah, you'll satisfy the culture around you. There's no question about that. And as a result, you avoid suffering and the reproach of people around you. But in doing so, you sell out. You sell out to have the love of men in an existence that's temporary, not having seen that what's most important in this world is not what's seen, but what's eternal. The love of men, the acceptance of men, it's transient. It's temporary. The need for God's love is and acceptance is an eternal one. And so Paul here fixes our minds again on what is eternal, on what's lasting. And this is the eternal focus. That's what the believer is hoping for. Paul wasn't hoping somehow that the worshipers of uh, Diana would welcome the Christians alongside them so that they might all get along and perhaps put together some kind of working relationship that would mutually benefit society where we'd all have a soup kitchen together and, uh, and uh, give out gifts at, uh, uh, at certain times of year together. Uh, no, that's not what Paul was looking for. He was intently focused on honoring God and no compromise with the culture will ever honor God. We know what God has promised us. And what we do here doesn't, what what we have here doesn't compare to that. We don't have it yet, but we will have it. And that's a certain certainty. And since we don't have it yet, we groan. 
It's not the groan of doubting or fear as if God isn't going to fulfill his promises for us. It's the groaning of a hopeful longing. And Paul isn't longing for death. That's not what he's longing for. You know what he's longing for? He's longing for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no one really longs for death. Paul wanted to be living when Christ returned again. And at Christ's return is, is when we will have the eternal building, a house built by God. Now imagine for a moment that you live in a, in a tent, but you knew that one day you were going to get a house. I mean, this is where you live. You live in a tent. You have a, a little pup tent. That's what you live in. And you know you're going to get a house soon, and you're waiting for them to build it. It would, it would be hard to think about anything else, wouldn't it? It'd be hard to set your mind on anything other than that house that you're getting. And spiritually, that's the case for us. We are dwelling in tents right now. Imagine how fast a tent de deteriorates compared to a well-built house, right? Uh, when the elements hit it, just as the elements wreak havoc on a, on a tent, so too the elements of life have a profound effect on our bodies. Our bodies are quickly deteriorating. The believer longs for the return of Christ and the general resurrection so that we receive a brand new body that God has promised us. And of course, Paul knew that there was a great possibility that Jesus would not return in his lifetime. And of the 2,000 years since Paul has lived, believers are still waiting. And Paul says in verse 3, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. And here's what Paul's speaking to. To a Corinthian culture that saw a gloomy afterlife uh, with disembodied souls. He is teaching them. He's teaching these former pagans that we are incomplete without a body. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Christian Christianity uh, is is unique among religions in terms of how it uh, its its emphasis on the body, um, the importance of the body. There were even in uh, uh, some religions uh, taught in those days that all matter was evil, and what that meant was that even the flesh that you dwelled in happened to be evil. For them, the preferred state was a disembodied existence. But Paul is teaching the Corinthians that this state isn't the end goal for uh, Christianity. The Christian doesn't, belong, doesn't long to be without a body. That's what Paul means when he refers to being naked here. We don't long to be without a body. So we don't long for death that way you know, in order that we might be separated from our bodies. We long to have a new building superimposed on the tent that we have. So if we die before Christ returns, we'll be without a body until the general resurrection at the end of time. And then at that time, we will be clothed over with a brand new body, a house not made with hands, a house eternal in preparation for the coming of a new age. Now, we ought to know that this does not mean that between our death and the resurrection that we're not with, with, we're not, that we're not with Christ. It doesn't mean that. Um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You'll look and see in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Listen here, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See how that works? So our lives are hidden with Christ in God and we'll appear in glory when Christ comes again. 
And church, when we die, we are securing God. We're hidden in Christ. We're awaiting that trumpet blast from God when the dead in Christ shall rise to meet him in the air. And Paul goes further with this idea in verse four there again. He says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And again, it's a reference for the desire of the coming of Christ during our lifetimes. If he comes, that we would not be found naked. We will simply be further clothed. In other words, if Jesus comes, we'll never be without a body. And Paul isn't suggesting in our groaning that we are anxious and burdened in such a way as that we don't know what's going to happen one day. It's a sure hope that the believer has that Christ will fulfill all that he's promised. To put it more succinctly, Paul says that what is mortal will simply be swallowed up by the life that is brought when Jesus Christ returns. So here, let's return to the imagery Paul's given us to bring a thunderous end to this. In this life, we're old clay pots, cheap, easily broken. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day as we were grown for the return of Jesus Christ and to be placed into something better than an old clay pot. Our bodies are referred to as tents, while what we have when Christ returns is a building from God, a wonderful house. If we should die and be found naked, that is bodiless, we will be hidden in Christ until the trumpet blasts when we shall all be fully clothed and given a brand new body. A house is a brand new house is a body. And if Christ should come again, our mortality will be swallowed up by life. So our frail existence will be replaced by a vibrant and substantial eternal existence in the next life. Now, how's that for good news, church? That's good news, isn't it? See what God has for you? Our faith is not meant to be lived in anxiety, wondering if God will be gracious towards us, you know, hoping, oh, maybe he'll save me. I know I've confessed my sin. I know I believed on Jesus. I know I was baptized. I go to church because I don't know. It's, our life is not meant to be lived that way. It's meant to be the sure, to be, our, we are meant to have the full assurance of our salvation that God is for us. There is to be no doubt. I don't know if you don't have any doubt. I hope that if you're in Christ, you're fully assured. I hope the only people that have doubt are those that have not really trusted Jesus Christ. Maybe they have done a few things and uh, they can say, well, I've done a few Christian things, and, but their life shows no fruit. Uh, they don't bear fruit uh, um, that's consistent with the repentance that they, that they said that they had. If that's you, you want to come assuredly to Jesus Christ where you can have hope. Not hope and oh, if I'm doing the right things and all that. Hope in Jesus Christ. And finally, we close with verse 5. It simply says this, he who, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, listen here, who has given us the Spirit as a guaranteed. And Paul teaches here, and this is how we close, that the very desire for these things has been placed in us by God. If you desire these things, God put that desire there for you. These inner yearnings weren't lying dormant there for you. Excuse me, it is God himself who prepared for us these stirrings of hope that he has since given us his spirit as a deposit. So when you are stirred up for the hope of heaven, know that God put that hope in you. 
God is preparing you for the, uh, preparing us to long for the very existence that he will no doubt bring us at the last day. As we long to be clothed over and swallowed up by life, we may know that this longing has been put here by God. Those that don't have it, they don't want what I've just said. Everything that I've just told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and about this tent being superimposed on by a new building and, 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 and all of this other stuff, they don't want that because they haven't been given the desire for it. They want to go on accumulating for themselves nice things and honors and accolades. But those that God is saving have had a burning desire for these things placed in them by the Holy Spirit. That's another way we can have assurance. God is putting a longing in us we didn't have for things he will most certainly complete. As C.S. Lewis said, if I find myself if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for <clears throat> the promises that you have given to us, Lord. Uh, we dwell in tents. We're just old clay pots. We just thank you so much that uh, you have made great promises that upon the return of Jesus Christ, uh, that uh, you will give, a, give us a building, a brand new body, a building, a house not made by hands, eternal. We are going to be further clothed when Jesus Christ returns. I pray, Lord, that none of us will be afraid to suffer the reproach of being a Christian in a world that hates Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we will love the gospel and be prepared to suffer persecution, uh, for people to look down on us uh, because we believe not only in a God, but in a particular Savior, Jesus Christ, one who suffered and died on a cross for our sins. This Savior we know the world looks at with ridicule and scorn. But I pray, Father, we might Embrace that reproach so that we might have the truth and so be found uh, in Jesus Christ. So I pray you'll strengthen each of these believers to love you and honor you and soldier on for the cross. This we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. We're going to sing a final hymn. It's uh, hymn, hymn number uh, 98. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. As you stand and as you sing with me, I heard the bells on Christmas Day.